right, welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. My name is John. And I'm Jack. And this week, we are joined by military and historian uh, Mason Barlin, uh, who, by his request, has unfortunately made us watch Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. However, it is timely enough uh, due to the fact that this episode will be coming out on uh, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. I forget which number anniversary it is, but all the same, it works for us. So Mason, welcome. If you'd like to say hello and tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. Um, As you said, my name is Mason. Uh, I am a retired police officer uh, in I left the job about six years ago. Uh, since then, I, uh, I took up what was a hobby of military history. Um, I write for a veterans blog uh, called, well, the blog was originally called This Ain't Hell, which is still what we go by, uh, but we lost the uh, uh, that URL because it was thisainthell.us, and there was some, when the original owner died, there was some headache with getting that transferred over. So anyway, uh, it goes by ValorGuardians.com now. Uh, so if you look over there, um, I post regularly. It's, a, uh, um, you know, there's a few weekly articles that I post up, and one of them is the uh, Valor Friday piece, which is one of the things that I took and ran with. Uh, so every week I'll post an article. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's uh, like a biography of any military figure usually american but sometimes uh um from allied countries uh and i'll explore what their life was like uh how they got to where they were when they earned some high honor usually the medal of honor or the navy cross or something like that um being uh that pearl harbor was obviously a big event uh i've written about several of the people that were there and what their roles were and how they got honored with with their things and so i'm sure we'll talk about some of them because a few of those few of those people are uh, are featured in the movie All right that's that's great so that kind of leads me into the next question which is uh obviously you said you've written a bit about this particular subject but why have you tortured me and jack with having to watch a michael bay film on a saturday <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when we first started talking about doing this, uh, you gave me a list of the recent movies that you've reviewed, and you've uh, reviewed all of the good ones lately. Uh, <laughs> so then I started looking, looking a little bit deeper, and uh, and remembered Pearl Harbor, and uh, it had been a while since I had seen it. Uh, so I'm actually kind of glad that I rewatched it because there were some there's some things that I liked about it that I had, I had forgotten. Uh, but there's a lot that uh, that you know could be improved, especially from the historical standpoint. No, absolutely. Um, one of the first things that I noticed about this film, or at least that I thought to myself, I was like, if there was ever a time capsule made, and this film was in it, this would be such a poor. Is both a poor representation and a perfect representation of early two thousand film. Like, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's big and over the top, like any Michael Bay movie is, uh, and you can tell that he was influenced a lot by 
some of the stuff that was happening around the same time because the movie came out in 2001 if i remember yes right uh so that would have been just a couple years after saving private ryan which kind of set the new benchmark for realism in a war movie uh because that really got you that visceral reaction like you were there um that i don't think any movie prior had really captured as well and i think Bay was going for that with this movie and some of it is very immersive like the actual attack on Pearl Harbor is it does feel like you were there um but he's also trying to kind of mimic some of the more storytelling aspects you get from other things that were going on around the same time like Band of Brothers came out in 2001 um which that has great combat scenes as well uh but it also tells you the story of the people a little bit more and I right I kind of feel like that's what Bay was going for with this weird love story, but it, I don't know. It's like, it's like a three hour movie and he just shoehorns so many different things in there that it really, so just many unnecessary things mask. too. Yeah. It, well, that's what I don't get is that is he's, there's so many amazing people that were involved in the attack on Pearl Harbor or, or the defense of Pearl Harbor um, that would make, great stories that he kind of just skirts around or makes composite characters out of. And it's, it's like, it's odd because some of the characters that are in there, like Doris Miller's in there, that was a uh, um, uh, Cuba Gooding's Cuba. role. Yeah. And I mean, that, that man was absolutely incredible. And the captain of the ship, uh, Mervyn Benyon, uh, they have him in the movie, but then, the the main characters are like these composites of several different people and it's like he's trying to go for kind of a forest gump where these these two bro these two guys that yeah. grew up on a farm next to each other somehow found their way to the war to pearl harbor then to the uh do little raid it's it's just it really stretches the bonds of credulity really yeah and i can it, i can understand it to a to a certain extent because like Take uh, the film Patriots Day with Mark Wahlberg in it. He mm -hmm. is he's kind of a standing character that obviously there's not a person who is involved in every single event in the Boston bombing story, but like he's placed in a position where it's like okay, we can we can follow the story around a central character. That kind of makes sense. It's just in this instance, they have our main characters doing. So so much that you're just like what why yeah yeah i also it's just you know it, it's like you said it's a it's a big over-the-top michael bay film but also it's just i mean there's a there's a reason that team america made the, this movie into a song and um is because it is genuinely terrible yeah yeah like i remember just like right off the bat in the opening scene when you know the kid versions of our main characters which i kind of get it it's meant to establish the like oh they have a long-standing relationship with each other but also it it felt like an unnecessary scene where it's like you know standard placeholder abusive dad traumatizes child situation and uh you know they're they're playing their little pretend game in uh a little like wreck of an airplane because they want to grow up to be pilots 
and they start saying, you know, just the most corniest shit, like, land of the free, home of the brave, you're my best friend. <laughs> it just reminded me of, like, the opening to uh, Talladega Nights, you know, the mm-hmm. Will Ferrell movie, where he's like, you're my best friend, shake and bake. <laughs> shake and bake. <laughs> but I just, the, that's the thing that frustrates me is I I get where they're coming from trying to have a character that we can follow start to finish, but it, it does a disservice to the people who actually inspired the events, such as, uh, what was their names? I believe it was Lieutenant Welch and Lieutenant Taylor. Mm-hmm. That were the, the those two were pilots the two... that were actually able to get airborne and, um, yeah. In, in a couple of P-40 Warhawks and, and actually shot down several planes during the attack, um, like, which is one of the composites that they, they made these characters out of. Um, and that, that's one of the stories that I think would be absolutely incredible to actually tell instead of trying to to make these characters kind of play that role during the attack and then go off and do other things both before and after. Just I don't know, from a historical his, historian's standpoint, it really falls flat. And from a storytelling standpoint, I think it also falls flat because it's just really confusing and it, it, it doesn't make sense for what we know of people at the time we're capable of, <laughs> you know, right. you go from one side of the planet to the other side and, you know, back and forth. And, and, you know, these things didn't happen overnight. It took weeks to travel from one theater to the other. And, and they've got these guys doing it left and right. It's oh, just yeah. confusing. Um, it, and it's, it's frustrating because, you know, like you mentioned, we, we do get, uh, Doris Miller's story in this. So it very clearly shows that they have the ability to tell these stories with and attributing it to the proper people. They're just choosing not to in other instances. Right. Absolutely. But Jack, what did you think? This movie sucked. <laughs> where would where would you like to start with that that uh, that comment? Jesus Christ! I might as well get it out of the way right now. But that part where he calls his buddy Earl, who conveniently has his name written on his hat, <laughs> and that uh, that's the Tom Sizemore character, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is this is prime uh, Tim Sizemore. Something, something. We need your help. We need to get down there and borrow your planes. What's going on? I think World War II just started. Uh, I picked up that <laughs> line, and I didn't remember that before either. Yeah, that was a horrible line. The war had been going on for two more than two years at that point. It wasn't even, yeah, and it wasn't even called World War II. It was just called broadly the war. If the war. Be, right. If you wanted to be specific, the war in Europe or the war in war or the war in the Pacific. But Jesus Christ, it wasn't even called World War II until at least at the earliest, I think, 40, 1947, after the war was over. I will uh, say, was, like, that part in the movie made me go, oh, fuck you. <laughs> also, Josh Hartnett, I don't think you have a, a good enough grasp of uh, geopolitics to to 
make that statement. Yeah. Mm. So besides that one line, what would what what would be your biggest gripe be? Um, Ben Affleck's death. Ben Affleck didn't die in this movie. Well, oh yes, he did. He like went crashed. Oh yes, I forgot. (laughs) I like not just kidding. I was just in France fucking around for three months. His air quote death. My apologies. Yeah, quote unquote death. I suppose that's a, a good place to to start with the, the 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 bashing on this movie is we we start with them doing their little game of chicken um in America and then they get chewed out by the <gasps> Marvel moment. Uh you know, Jimmy Doolittle is behind the desk. Um I, I, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I feel like Michael Bay should probably sue uh, Marvel because this movie really felt like you know all those like moments in the Marvel movie movies where you're like oh, it's so and so or oh, I see that like that storyline like this he was packing this movie with those moments with this but for like history nerds but anyways we get Ben Affleck as Jimmy Doolittle which I no uh, I Alec I Baldwin think... yeah it was Alec Baldwin. What did I say? <laughs> ben Affleck. <laughs> Sorry. I this this movie has drove me to drinking, so I I uh I'm getting a little little mixed up. Yes, Ben Affleck as Jimmy Doolittle. Which I didn't think he did a terrible job, but also it's just meh. Um but he's like, I'm gonna chew you out for dicking around with government property. Also, here's a letter from the English. And it's like saying you can go fight for them. They've accepted you. Da, 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 da. And it's like at this at this period in time, like we still America still had strong neutrality laws. Like if Jimmy Doolittle received a letter from the British saying, hey, your pilot's been accepted into our our program or he can come over here and fly here like ben affleck's character would be thrown into fucking jail because that was a hundred percent not okay with the u.s government at the time well it's um, and it's it's a good thing they put that in i kind of like the nod to the eagle squadrons which is what the uh the raf units staffed by um, american pilots was called um right. so i kind of liked having that inclusion because i think a lot of people don't know that the that there were Americans fighting in the war before we officially entered, but yes, none of them were active military. Uh, all of the Americans that went to the Eagle squadrons were civilians that either went to Canada and tried to enlist with the RCAF or just went straight to England. Um, but conversely, if they had done it for the Pacific theater side, the, the flying tigers in China were nominally civilians uh, but they were all active Army Air Force guys um, that were basically taken off the books and sent to China to fight. Um, I think in 1940, I want to say they they hit the hit the skies uh, just before Pearl Harbor. Um, so it would have made a little more sense, especially since this the movie is 
keyed up on the Pacific War uh, more so than the European one. Um, it would have made a lot more sense both with the story and with, you know, the congruity of the actual historical events. Um, but I did like that they included the Eagle Squadrons in there, even if it appeared for absolutely no reason other right. than to uh, make Ben Affleck's character, you know, a fighter ace and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the big badass before the, the main attack. Right. Sets him, sets him up perfectly to be the one, one of two guys to get up in the air during Pearl Harbor. Um, what I will say though, is despite the like BS, like I was dead, but I came back. I was so cold, but only my thought of you kept me alive. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole romantic subplot and then the like three way thing when, you know, he does sort of die it it's really just over the top sappy like even for like a hallmark movie of the week kind of thing it would be over the top i um but the the thing about that battle of britain thing is that it goes to show like there are moments in this movie that are so well done and then it's all taken down by just like shitty dialogue and shitty acting because like when we see the actual aerial combat scenes for the battle of britain like that is a huge like fuck yeah like fucking blowing up he-111s and like you got dog fights and they're using real fighters for these scenes too it's not cgi so like it just like you're hearing the engines roar and like those scenes are amazing and then you get the stupid like i'm in the middle of yelling out mayday crashing and burning and like you see him glance at his stupid little origami crane that he has perched on his cockpit ledge and you're like oh cool man i just looked it up and apparently pearl harbor is a real place it's wild it's wild (laughs) that they actually attacked this place to make a movie Michael Bay will spare no expense for a movie. <laughs> Even if it starts an international <laughs> conflict. That is kind of an interesting point is uh, doesn't the Navy have part of like a mothball fleet in Pearl Harbor? That I don't know. Uh, I mean, there there are the ships that are still there, obviously, like Arizona um, that they never raised. That part is a national park or a national monument of some sort. Um, right. At, and as far as Pearl itself is still an active naval base. So they probably do have some ships there either undergoing long-term overhauls or, or just sitting there. Because that was one thing, uh, you know, something that was kind of popular with movies of this time frame was like, if you ever bought the like DVD for a movie, there was always like, the extra bonus features section of the DVD. And it was like the making of, and it was like a half hour, 45 minute documentary. And I actually watched that for this because this movie made me mad enough that I just like, I'm like, I have to go deeper on this bullshit. (laughs) And, uh, but it was, it was a long time ago. Um, I shouldn't say a long time ago. It was literally a couple days ago. Anyways. Um, but Michael Bay obviously had the support of the Navy in making this film. 
because they used actual aircraft carriers for some of these scenes, like modern carriers, but also for the Pearl Harbor attack scene, if you look close enough, they're modern destroyers that are getting, they have like pyrotechnics set up on them to like mimic the effect of like a full harbor. So I couldn't remember if those ships were specifically like stationed there or if it was a different location, they just cut it in. But I do recall part of this filming process was them uh, fireball, you know, making a fireball explode out of some mothballed ships. There were a lot of uh, practical effects used in this movie that I think definitely helped make the action scenes hold up over time. Because a lot of times you watch a movie especially from the late nineties or the early two thousands, where we started to rely heavily on CGI and 20 years later, they just, they don't hold up. They look like crap. Now it looks like a cartoon, you know, like uh, the rocks cameo in the mummy, uh, the second or yeah. third <laughs> mummy movie where you just, I mean, the scorpion king. atrocious. Uh, and, and I'm sure there was a lot of CGI used in this, but it was done with a lot of practical special effects so it, it really does blend well and watching it 20 years later it's surprisingly holds up um so i think that's a that's one of the good elements of the movie is that there are a lot of the actual aircraft um so you kind of get to see you know you get that element of realism that you you definitely don't get watching a movie like um like flyboys or red tails or or where they just use nothing but cgi and it, it shows. It's like watching a video game. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a moment like that a few weeks ago. Um, and Jack would, I imagine you'll probably agree with me, which is, you know, we watched Midway a couple of weeks ago, the 2019 version mm-hmm. of it. And for a movie that's only four years old, it just, it still doesn't, it, it it's garbage. It, it didn't hold up. Like, yeah, and that's all that, as I recall, that one is like, pretty much completely cgi yeah for the for the most part is pretty much completely cgi'd and it's a shame because midway took the opposite approach of pearl harbor which is they were accurate with their storytelling which is something that we wanted out of this film here in pearl harbor Mm -hmm. but they put all their effort into that that the actual practical effects or the like filming of it just looks terrible Mm -hmm. what do you what do you think jack is that a a fair summary i didn't like midway either man yeah that's because you don't like ed scrime that's that in this yeah like you said the cgi just did not hold up which is odd for a four-year-old movie but i don't think midway cgi held up when it came out so yeah man this movie was painful (laughs) that uh part of the movie where they they uh drops the bomb on the arizona and it goes through multiple decks and lands in the ammunition and we have that one-liner from the cook where he looks down and says son of a bit and then boom (laughs) It's a very uh, Michael Bay moment. It, it really is. But that's probably... I 
I appreciated, even if the actual, like, with the exception of, like, seeing the bomb go through multiple decks and then it explodes, like, kind of bugs me. But the, the like, seven seconds of film that we get where we actually see the Arizona exploding, like, that was a terrific bit of CGI. Like, even by today's standards, like, that moment in this film, seeing the Arizona explode, was probably one of the best moments in this film for me. Because it, mm-hmm. it, it felt real, and, like, it actually, like, evoked, it, like, some emotion out of me, where, like, even though you, you get the 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 cook who says it and plants it in your brain. But when you see the ship fucking jump out of the water, like it makes you think, Oh fuck, that's fucking hardcore. Yeah. And the Japanese attack around the halfway point of this movie. Yeah. It was an hour and a half in. I think it, I, I looked at the clock cause I was thinking, God, yeah. this is really going on. It was like an hour and 25 into the film before the actual attack starts. In that whole love, love triangle thing made me, just made me wish like can the japanese just fucking attack already whereas i'm sure my grand grandpa thought the opposite but still (laughs) (laughs) oh it and it's one of those things is that like the entire movie they are you know they're doing exposition that's like it's going to happen it's going to happen it's going to happen i promise it's getting there because like we get the the cuts to like the the intelligence analysts like decoding stuff and then like the memos to the admiral and you're like it's like every like the movie makes it seem like everybody knows like oh yeah it's a matter of it's a matter of time before our entire pacific fleet gets destroyed but you gotta hold on we need to let kate beckinsale and ben affleck do the thing first what did you think of our our love triangle, Mason. Uh, not a fan. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. It just, none of it seemed real. Like none of the characters were really anybody that I felt connected to, you know, like it just all felt very, very trite, very forced, very, cookie cutter you know just cheesy romance really it wasn't none of the main three characters uh were people that you really got to like even though you spent so much time with them in this movie you know they get like two hours on screen um like you're there's just nothing when, memorable you there. were happy when danny died weren't you but we all were i mean yeah <laughs> I, what I think the issue here is, is that, did you ever see the film From Here to Eternity? Ah, God, I'm I'm sure I have, but if if I have, it was a long time ago. It's, it's a very famous, uh, wartime film, uh, about the Pacific theater. And it's, it's literally a love story that takes place in Pearl Harbor. Um, and this movie references it or in the the words of ben affleck the french have a word it's an homage if you will. <laughs> yes, yes 
which Jimmy Doolittle had never heard of before. Oh yeah, because <laughs> world famous Jimmy Doolittle, <laughs> who literally pioneer of aviation, doesn't know a word of French. <laughs> but that's that's what I felt like they were trying to do here was they were trying to shoehorn a copy paste of a from here to eternity storyline into this movie and i think it could have been it's like many things in this film it could have been done had somebody else been in charge they they might have been able to have pulled it off but and isn't that just decided on one you know is it going to be an action movie is it going to be a historical drama is it going to be a rom? you know a period romance but they try and make it into the three or four different movies all at once. And I don't think anybody is happy that was looking for any one of those genres. I don't think anybody was happy period, (laughs) which is, so I got to come clean on this and this, you're probably going to hate me for making this statement because it'll probably make you feel old seeing as you said, you retired recently. Um, but I was a kid when this movie came out. <laughs> I was like seven when Pearl Harbor came out. Um, I thought you were about to and... say I was about seven when it was attacked. <laughs> yeah. Grandpa. Just Benjamin Button over here. <laughs> um, so I was about seven when this movie came out. And when I was six or seven, that's when my my love of history really took off when i really started getting into stuff and the the one of the subjects i really latched onto was pearl harbor um like almost to an autism level if you will um but i i loved the subject of pearl harbor i read every book i could get my hands on when i was a kid about this so when this movie came out and i finally got the fucking dvds for it and mind you when i got it on dvd it was a two dvd box set like this this bullshit was so long that early 2000s dvd technology couldn't keep it on one disc and i watched the ever-loving shit out of this movie because i thought it was amazing but a thing to remember is that like six or seven year old john didn't give two shits about the love story so like it would literally be like Battle of Britain, skip to Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, skip to the Doolittle Raid, finish. So I, like, as a kid, I was doing my own, like, John cut of this film where I'm like, I'm only watching the good shit, and I just watched it on repeat. And it wasn't until I watched it this past week that I was like, oh my god, this movie was fucking terrible. Like, (laughs) how could I have devoted so much of my childhood watching this bullshit? So... At one point, there was a fan of this film. If it makes you feel any better, one of the movies I loved as a kid was Almost Heroes, and it has a 15% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I still hold that movie in high regard next to my heart. What is Almost Heroes about? Well, the rivals of Lewis and Clark trying to beat them to the Pacific Coast. It stars matthew perry god rest his soul and chris farley god rest his soul 
Yes, I remember. I, I don't know if I've seen it, but I remember the poster now. I remember in when fact, that movie came out. In fact, that this a was a weird combination. This is this was Chris Farley's last movie before he died. I know. <laughs> I know. You said almost heroes? Yeah. I'm guessing the title gives away the fact that they were not the first ones to get to the Pacific Coast. Well, don't fucking spoil the movie. Watch it yourself, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't is have to watch. A, is it based on a true story, though? Where, yes, was there is, another this group absolutely of... happened. Oh. Oh, for I'm a second, kidding. I thought you were going to say it was like a stoner comedy. But yes, it is a stoner comedy of sorts. Like, they, there's no weed smoking in this movie. But I can just see a bunch of stoners losing their shit to this movie. No, it was the 90s. Back when the devil's lettuce was no-go. Yep. Everyone. <laughs> but Unless it, but you went it, to a public high school. But in secret, everyone had some left-handed cigarettes. Jazz cigarettes. I think one of my favorite slang terms for marijuana is goofy grass. Goofy grass. Goofy grass. Whenever whenever one of us would fuck up or do or say something stupid in gym class, my old high school gym teacher used to yell out, Are you smoking that Mexican lettuce? Jesus. Hey, bonehead! <laughs> oh, Mr. Snyder. I hope you're listening to this, Mr. Snyder. You're the best gym teacher I've ever had. I would be shocked if he's one of our 15 listeners. 16. Find you. Give, a, give us credit. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, to step away from our, our main characters for a moment, what did we think about the portrayal of the Japanese in this film and especially the the Japanese preparations uh, leading was, up to the attack since we have a historian here was that that scene where they're all like planning and shit and they have like this big pool that they have I have ships. no idea it looked absolutely ridiculous I can't imagine that anyone was actually doing a like they would have it at some sort of a shrine like that I that seems like it, and uh, I, I, thought, I honestly I don't know. Kind of, I thought it looked kind of badass. Not gonna well, it does it. absolutely. I I think it. Uh, I think that was done for, for artistic purposes because it seems weird to Michael me that they would, would have never <laughs> would have a large outdoor, uh, outdoor uh, tabletop exercise area like that. Yeah, it did seem like it could have been relegated to like I don't know a table in a map. And some it's, which is usually how uh, military operations are actually planned is some maybe some no list boring room uh <laughs> maybe some spare like 40k miniatures yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can okay. you can use my space marines i i don't have them in a campaign right now now this uh this stapler will represent uh the battleships uh i think the japanese in this movie were portrayed um, I, w I don't want to say reverently, uh, but they were painted in a very, uh, a very good light overall. If that makes sense. No, I definitely, because we've, you know, this is, we're closing in on almost 40 episodes now. 
and you know some of the films that we've reviewed such as like sands of iwo jima and whatnot or wind talkers are are terrible in how they they represent the japanese like very much caricatures you know Mm -hmm. almost like they're copy and pasted out of a 1940s like propaganda cartoon but this one shows like a high level of like professionalism and kind of like almost intensity i want to say yeah uh yeah they come across as very professional um disciplined and and in a lot of ways the japanese were um it 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 doesn't really paint them as the bad guy so much i mean there's even one scene at the very beginning of the the actual attack on pearl harbor where there's um there's these two boys on a hill uh or they're playing baseball or something and and all these planes come flying in and one of the kids makes eye contact with the the backseat gunner in one of the bombers and the guy like the japanese guy like waves him off as like you know like tell go him home. leave or get away or whatever and 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 even that little bit of a nod you know it 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 comes across like they're you know they're like bay was trying not to say that they were the bad guys <clears throat> unequivocally that there was you know that more of a gentleman's war which is less of how the japanese have always been portrayed in our media you know you'll see more of that in the in the european side especially with the germans that that they're you know that there was honor on both sides. You'll see a lot of that in the portrayal of Germans during world war two, but not, not so much with Japanese and, and in this movie, they really, they really don't paint them as the bad guy, even though, I mean, they pretty clearly were, it was a sneak attack and the Japanese definitely get portrayed more fanatical than anything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. And they weren't, there was none of that portrayal here. I, I will say, like, I appreciated, like, the fact that they, even if it was incorrectly done, like, especially, like, somebody's demonstrating to Admiral Yamamoto, he's like, how are we going to torpedo them? And they're like, wood fins, look, it'll work. Yeah, they've got, they happen to have a torpedo sitting there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, we have, have a torpedo like, here for you, sir. It's like nobody thought like, oh, we could just put a paper proposal on his desk. Like, um, but I that was appreciate- that was true. Uh, they did have to modify the torpedoes to because because Pearl was such a shallow harbor. I forget how deep it actually is. Um, it's probably deeper than you would expect since they're driving battleships into it. Um, but it was deep enough that the torpedoes were going to hit the bottom. So they did have to modify them in order to work um, on their on their runs. That was. So like that preparation thing, I appreciated seeing it because I think, and it's not necessarily how it's portrayed, but I think a lot of the way that Americans or people in general understand or think of Pearl Harbor is this kind of perspective where it's like, oh, everything was hunky-dory, we're playing around with surfboards, and then the Japanese went and sank our fucking fleets out of nowhere um and it's like no these these guys spent like months getting ready for this um and you know there was years of you know political tension leading up to it Mm -hmm. and 
Michael Bay kind of added to that into the whole thing. It's like, well, they're they're going to attack us and start a war with us because America cut off their oil supplies or some or diminished their oil. And it's like, okay, it's there's way more going. Like, yes, that's a big reason, but there's way more going on leading up to this than just oil. But speaking of uh, the whole torpedo thing, something that made me mad, and I don't know if uh, you had come across this kind of thought, Mason, but, um, you know, there's a moment in this film where, you know, one of the umpteen million telegrams that are passed on to the Admiral, one of them is japanese submarine sunk outside of pearl harbor by a destroyer Mm -hmm. um and that's all we hear that's like the the like lead up to the big attack scene and something that i personally wish that was in this is we have a movie literally called pearl harbor is three hours long could we not have had a scene where this destroyer is lobbing rounds at a submarine. Like, is that like, do we, do we run out of budget or is that just not cool enough for you, Michael Bay? But I mean, there's also the aspect of it where there's a line in this film where they're like, Oh, we don't have to worry about torpedoes. We have submarine nets, but we literally like the Japanese literally inserted five miniature submarines into Pearl Harbor for this attack. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have been another like super awesome or super cool thing to show. Cause you know, like I said, it's a three hour movie that's supposed to be about Pearl Harbor. We, ha- we should have had the luxury of literally diving into everything that is this attack. Yeah. I think that would have been something good to add more so than just giving a one line to, um, kind of along the same lines they do mention it very briefly um when the radar operators uh at pearl harbor or i think it was um one of the army airfields nearby but they had detected um the first wave of aircraft coming in and the the duty officer they tell him that you know there's something out there and he says oh it's just some b-17s flying in from the mainland um and that also happened so that was an you know there were all these warning signs but because I don't, you know, people are people, um, you know, the dots don't get all connected. Um, but I, I was glad they put that one in there. Uh, but they just give a pass to the, you know, to the midget subs where that's a pretty cool element of the story that I, I agree with you would have been nice to see. But it probably doesn't make for very good, very good movie making because you can't really see much on the surface and. Underwater, there's probably not a lot of action, you know, especially if they're just running into the submarine nets. I think the coolest thing about that submarine story, and granted, like I said, it's not shown in this movie, but we actually captured one of those submariners alive. Because, mm-hmm. um, like I said, there was five of these subs, and they're, they are tiny submarines. They only have like a two-man crew and they each have like two sub or two torpedoes attached yeah it's it's i mean it's basically a man torpedo really is is what it is there's not a lot to them um but one of these subs washed up on shore because they got lost basically 
and you know the Americans captured the crew of this submarine and that was such a huge thing like the Japanese were so angry about that like the for the longest time the crews of those submarines because all the other four were lost the crews died uh all of all of them were sunk besides the one we captured um those crews were like turned into heroes they were memorialized they had like paintings done up of them they're like the paintings were put in shrines and stuff like that and the crew that got captured like it was seemed so dishonorable that a they failed and b instead of dying they got captured like they are literally just kind of like wiped from the history books of their storytelling of the pearl harbor attack and i think like that is such a interesting human story that we completely gloss over yeah but i di- i digress about something that's <laughs> not even in the film so um i know we had touched on it a bit earlier but uh what do we think about uh the doris miller story line in this movie uh overall i think they did really good with uh with the character i mean he's 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 an incredible historical figure i mean he was the first black man to get the navy cross he was a cook in the segregated navy you know they wouldn't at 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 that time and and prior to world war ii um blacks couldn't do anything they were servants and and cooks as they're portrayed in the movie and um when the the battle starts he finds his way he now he was um he was one of the uh stewards for the captain so he worked with the captain fairly closely um but he finds his way up by where the captain is and the captain's been hit and is refusing evacuation um you know uh, that's uh uh Mervyn Benyon and as portrayed in the movie, the captain stayed at the post. I mean, he absolutely refused. He, he was right to his last breath was leading his crew and he got the medal of honor posthumously for it. And right alongside him was, was Doris Miller, who, I mean, the two men couldn't possibly be from further different backgrounds. I mean, completely different. Um, but in that one moment, they were right next to each other and they were, you know, fighting, right up to the end and when a gun opened when there wasn't anybody to staff it doris goes over there and mans the gun and starts shooting at the planes i mean it's not something he's been trained for but he's you know he's jumping right into the thick of it and he's doing what needs to be done to help save the ship and 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 the crew and what isn't portrayed after that is he's a you know cuba gooding is 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 a good actor and he's if for the role, he's probably not too terrible. Um, obviously, you know, as as they say in Team America, he uh, he was shortchanged because he's a much better actor than uh, than basically this cameo affords him. Um, but Doris Miller was a very big guy, uh, you know, and they kind of allude to that a little bit with the the boxing, and he was the champ, um, the boxing champ for the for the ship. Um, but after the attack, so after the second wave leaves. Uh, Doris Miller was one of those 
that was out there working for hours, dragging people out on deck, getting them into lifeboats and, you know, helping save people. So long after the attack, I mean, the guy just didn't quit. He just kept going and going and going. And, and that's why they gave him the Navy cross. I think he really deserved the medal of honor. I think they're probably the race played a, a role in that. Um, but even so they used him as he was the literal poster boy for the, the Navy's war effort. Um, there are, uh, he's on a recruiting poster of him standing there proud. Um, you know, his cracker jacks with the Navy cross pinned to his chest. Uh, so it, I, I think they do a fairly good job with it being that he wasn't the focus of the movie, but they kind of get some of those elements in there. You know, they get that he's the boxer. They get that he's the, He's the he's the steward that uh, isn't allowed to you know man the guns, and then when given the chance and you know in the heat of the moment he he comes through and he does it, and he's right there with the captain, you know up until the up until the end. I uh, I I loved his storyline, Jack. I don't know if you caught this moment, but this was a moment that I literally rewinded and had to play again but it was when we are seeing him when we're first introduced to him and he's in a boxing match uh on the deck of one of the battleships and he is boxing against uh another sailor who's white and he gets punched in the in the face like several times and this white sailor says you hit pretty hard for a cook and I paused the movie and I had hmm. to go I had to go back and I'm like did he really say that like 1941 segregated navy and that's the sentence he uses yep <laughs> like I I get we're we're not going to be dropping like hard r words probably in this movie but we're already at an r rating like can we like, can we not, gl- like, glance over the whole, like, racism thing here? Because that, like, it's it's the 40s. Like, it's going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. Inevitably. Uh, what did you think about that, Mason? Uh, yeah, I, I think that was sanitized for a, for a 21st century audience, for sure. Uh, they kind of allude to, and he explains to Kate Beckinsale's character at some point that you know, that they won't even let him fire a gun. Um, so they kind of dance around that, but they don't, they don't just come out and say, yeah, that things were incredibly racist at this point, especially for guys in the Navy. Cause the, 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 the black people in the Navy at the time couldn't do anything. I mean, they were really just given the shittiest jobs. Um, and yeah, they, they dance around it. I think they ch- kind of try to allude to it a little bit, but I think it's more for, more for a modern audience. I, uh, something that I, I had to look it up after the fact, but something I didn't realize, but I felt like would have been a good add on in this film is like, you know, at the end of this film, Kate Beckinsale does her little monologue of, you know, whatever facts and what have you. Um, but you know, she mentions like Doris Miller is the first, uh, african-american to receive the navy cross and what have you um if you look up his actual like biography 
he continued to fight in the in the war and he would die a year later mm-hmm. but the craziest thing about his death uh he was on a i think he was on an escort carrier i believe so a smaller aircraft carrier um but it was sunk by a submarine and his family was notified of his death on december 7th 1943 mm-hmm. so like to me that that is such a crazy thing to think about is like imagine having like a family member who is who is stationed in pearl harbor and you hear on the radio or you see on the newspaper that this base got attacked and thousands of people have died and just like the sheer terror that that's got to invoke and then you finally find out like oh okay my loved one is fine and not only is he fine but he's like this big hero of this day only to have a year from the day that you have that big emotional roller coaster occur to go immediately through it again but this time you get the worst news which is he's gone now mm-hmm. yeah well and and one thing worth noting there too is that uh his returning back to a combat assignment was by request you know a lot of these a lot of these guys felt like they were letting their team down you know letting their 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 comrades down because when they were the big hero of the day like that they were brought back stateside and paraded around to everybody for war bond drives for propaganda purposes you know they were given newspaper interviews and radio interviews all over the country and a lot of these guys and Doris Miller was one of them who, you know, they didn't want to spend the whole war doing that. They wanted to go out there and do their part. And he requested to go back to a fleet assignment and it was on his way back that the ship sunk um, and unfortunately claimed his life. But, you know, it's worth remembering that these guys were so committed to going to fight that when they were given the opportunity to go home and spend the rest of the war completely out of it and they would still be hailed as as the hero because of what they did that you know nobody would think the worst of them uh but they still wanted to go back in and 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 keep going and i i think that's incredible it's hard to wrap your head around sometimes well at the very least if he even though he didn't get the uh the Medal of Honor awarded to him. Uh, the next next best thing is he's getting an aircraft carrier named after him. So yeah, and if I if I'm not mistaken, he's the first just regular sailor who's getting a carrier named after him, isn't he? Because usually carriers uh, are named, yeah. named after presidents, aren't they? Or uh, presidents, or yeah, there's been been a few like you know Lexington and Saratoga and other historical battles. I don't think I can't think of anything off the top of my head because um, yeah, it's usually lately it's been presidents or um, well like Nimitz uh, was an admiral, um, but I can't think of any. Uh, definitely not an enlisted sailor for sure. Uh, it's a huge honor, especially for something as big as an aircraft carrier. I know I know the Navy has named several destroyers after significant uh sailors like um i know there's a destroyer that was named after uh lieutenant michael murphy who was awarded the medal of honor from 
the Afghanistan conflict. Mm-hmm. But I think it I think it speaks a lot that Doris Miller is getting getting a an entire carrier named after him. But Jack, what would you say is uh we already talked about your least favorite moment. What is your favorite moment in this film? When it ended. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um shit. I mean, I guess I did like the scene where it shows just how stressed the nurses were during that. What I don't like, however, is how they did it with the shaky cam and the blurry cam. And then oh, just yeah. constant screaming and, and yelling and yeah. Yeah, the screaming it, and yelling I'm okay with because, you know, it's, it's a wounded ward, but you don't really see that a lot in war movies, do you? The nurses side of things. No, I mean, we occasionally see, like, field hospital tent scenes in the movies, but they're yes, very but kind of glanced over. And it's for the, from the perspective of usually the protagonist. Right. This was... Um, Jack, I think you're familiar with the Bechtel test, right? Yes. Mason, have you ever heard of the Bechtel test? No, I don't think so. So... The Bechtel test, it's a popular metric or it was a metric that was came up within the like film industry, uh, which basically it's a two part test and it's a very simple one. Um, one is you need to have two named female characters. So they're not just like background characters or passerby characters like they are actual integral parts to the story you have two female characters that actually have names that we know and the second part of the test is that these two female characters have a conversation together and it does the conversation does not reference a man and and it this is probably this is probably the only time that I've gone upset at a film for not passing the Bechtel test because like, depending on what the movie is or what the objectives are or what story it's telling, like obviously not every film is going to do it, but this film is so blatantly bad about failing the Bechtel test because we literally have an entire subplot of these four or five nurses who all have, you know, they're their own individual characters. They're always hanging out together. They have a specific job. They play a very big role in the telling of the story of the attack. And yet we, we get two, we get two versions of them, which is how you alluded to Jack, which is freaking the fuck out shaky cam moment or it's oh my word how am i going to be able to choose between all these fine handsome sailors like it's because michael bay (laughs) it does they are really uh one-dimensional characters there's like i think there's such an interesting story to be told with them like the whole like a woman joining the military at this time in history seems like it would be a very interesting story to tell you know, just 
being a service member in Hawaii at this time, or better yet, just like, just leave their story as is with the whole, like having to treat hundreds of people all at once. Like it's a very impressive story. Like it just, it bugged the shit out of me that those were our two variations of these characters, which is I can only think about Ben Affleck or I'm writing blood types on people's forehead with lipstick. Like, there should have been more. It, I don't know. With three hours, they definitely had time to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't know if you had ever heard of that test. But now that I've explained that test to you, does does that kind of make sense to you? Where it's like this film had the ability to 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 pass it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and they definitely uh, the the women in the in the movie are really just. Well, I don't want to say window dressing, but they are given very shallow roles to play. And it's really just as the romantic interest for all the guys until you get to the attack. And then they have this five minutes of 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 their heroism. And and then we're back to the guys again. The thing I Um, go ahead. um, Sorry to cut you off, but I remember there is this one movie and I can't for the life of me remember what it was called. But there's an entire scene where two of the female characters are at a bar and they don't for and they don't for a single second even talk about another man. It's just like boring conversationalist shit or it has to directly do with the plot. And the name of the bar they're drinking at is called the Bechdel's Bar. That's a good that's a good one. Like the uh, like the what the other part that i didn't understand is like going back to the kate beckinsale monologue at the end of this film we see all of the nurses like in a line getting awarded but they're all getting awarded the purple heart and i'm like wait a minute like they didn't all get wounded did they like i feel like we it just felt really out of place and it felt like a michael bay like oh let's just pin some shit on them to make them look heroic mm-hmm yeah, I had the same thought because they didn't show any of them getting injured, so it, it did seem like an odd, an odd award to be pinning on them at the end there. But what was what was your favorite part of the the Pearl Harbor attack sequence, Mason? Uh, well, like you said, the 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 explosion of Arizona. Uh, and even though that is CGI, that was such a cool effect where they had, like, you could see everything buckling from inside, you know, like the, you could see the explosive wave come out and the, and the wooden deck of the ship kind of heaves before it blows up. Um, and that's the moment at which it's, especially for the guys that are, that are there, it's like, oh shit, this is real. You know, this isn't just some, some little thing. I mean, one of our biggest, most powerful ships just fucking blew up and, um, yeah, that that part stuck with me. Um, but really, the whole the whole attack scene itself is just really well done. You know, you have um, like when Oklahoma capsizes, and you see the 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 name Oklahoma r- that's written on the back of the ship kind of flip over, or the camera flips over. I forget which way it goes. Um, you know, and that that's stuff that actually happened, and the and the 
I think a lot of that was done with practical effects too. So it's, it's aside from the ships, not having a lot of barnacles and stuff on their, on the bottoms of their hulls. It's so realistic, you know, and one of the things I noticed is that as one of the ships was capsizing, they did a little bit of the, you know, people hanging on like, uh, like, like, like I always Titanic. think of Titanic. Yeah. yeah. Which this came out a couple years later. So it's, it's not a surprise that you'd see kind of the similarities, but where the people are like hanging on and jumping in, or you have the one guy who says he can't swim, which was very common at the time. You know, you, you nowadays you'd think that was absolutely crazy that somebody would join the Navy who doesn't know how to swim, but it was, it was super common for sailors not to know how to swim. Um, so yeah, the whole attack I think is, is really just spectacularly done from a cinematic standpoint. And I remember, so I had built my first home theater, you know, somewhere around 2004 or 2005 and did the surround sound and all that. And this was always one of those that I like to pull up to demonstrate because, and I think the sound editing for this movie won an Academy Award. So a movie that wins Razzies and other jeers for how terrible it is also wins Academy Awards because one element of it is really good. Um but the sound in a surround sound environment, I mean, it really is it, bullets are zinging around behind you and the and the the sounds of the aircraft engines and the guns firing and everything is very, very well done. Um, and it, I kind of wish that happened like an hour earlier in the movie because there's so much of this love story, exposition, backstory about these guys that that by the time you get to the attack, it's like, oh, thank God, finally it's happening. Um, but it, it I'm, but it is I'm really pregnant. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It is uh, the, the attack itself is actually really good. And with all of the stuff going on around it, you know, with the ships going down and then, you know, then you get to the weird part, like you were talking earlier, where they're trying to get to the airfield and like, supposedly nobody out there has any idea what's going on at this auxiliary field, you know, like they haven't heard the explosions and the, and you know, the stuff going on 10 minutes away that kind of takes you out of the moment. And Man, then... the luau really got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that actually was, I had read at one point that that's what uh, some of the people thought initially um, at the time was that, you know, it's Sunday morning. It's almost Christmas. So there's nobody really doing a whole lot of anything. You know, it's kind of a lazy day. And all of a sudden this sh stuff starts popping off that I'm sure your first reaction isn't that this is something, you know, that this is the war. This it's somebody goofing off. Right. But then they get to the airfield and all these, these pilots are now suddenly gunners and, and, they're setting up defensive fighting positions and, you know, Tom Sizemore apparently is the only guy that's working at the field that day. He's getting all these planes ready to go, but there was like she nobody else there. Nobody else getting a gun. Nobody, you know, yes, they have to ask him where the, where the guns are. And he's like, Oh, over there. And then they go break into the cage. It's a, it's a giant it's, locker that says weapons on it. Right. Shooting and, at him with a shotgun. Cause he's a badass. I, I yeah, love he's that like, moment pulls it out of his sock. Where'd that thing come from? He's just ready. It is as Tom Sizemore a moment as you will ever get. Um, I, I loved it. And I also love just the quip. I forget if it was Ben Affleck or Josh Hartnett that said it, but it's like, Oh, they're going to be back. You're going to need more than a shotgun. It's like, no shit. Like, <laughs> 
But I love the fact that throughout the rest of the scenes that we see Tom Sizemore, he never ditched the shotgun. Like no, he's shooting it from the tower. Like when they're <laughs> like everybody's got shot at this plane as it's going by. Like everybody else has Thompsons and like thirty cows and shit like that. Nah, Tom Sizemore, we're sticking to the twelve gauge. <laughs> but I like I know he doesn't get a ton of time, but I felt like. Tom Tom Sizemore was a good good character in this. Like even oh, though he's absolutely. one one dimensional, he's like, this is what I need. I I needed the grizzled sergeant to like ground me in this shitty film. You know, that that's it's kind of the Tom Sizemore role, really. I mean, that's basically the same character you played in Saving Private Ryan and uh, Black Hawk and it Down. Was perfect there too. <laughs> yeah, Black Hawk Down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's the same guy. He's the badass sergeant who just doesn't give a fuck. What I will say is um, it's funny that we're making fun of Tom Sizemore's shotgun, but one thing that I saw repeatedly throughout different scenes is soldiers and sailors and these airmen who have the bolt action 1903s. And you're like, man, that seems kind of out of place, but like that's legitimately what there was an abundance of because you know the u.s arsenal hadn't really transitioned over to the m1 yet so that's what would have been available in mass and it's uh i just thought it was an interesting thing to be accurate on for uh michael bay you know yeah especially with all the other historical inaccuracies like you know it and if you if you know the aircraft that you're looking at you know that a lot of the that they're not the right exact model. You know, the B-25s at the end are late model B-25s because those are where they're still flying. Where during the actual Doolittle raid, they were early. I think they were B models. Um, but yeah, then to have something, have a little a little detail like that that is accurate was almost jarring because everything else is, you know, <laughs> is close but not accurate. You know, close but uh, but not perfect. Right. It's interesting because uh, have you ever heard of a place called uh, the Rock Island Auction Company? Uh, well, is it like affiliated with like the Rock Island Island uh, Arsenal? Yeah. So Rock Island Auction Company is a firearms auction company and they're like the premier like firearms auction company in the United States. Like they're the place you go to like one of their most recent auctions they sold a pistol that was owned by Teddy Roosevelt and was supposedly with him when he went up San Juan Hill. Like oh. it's that kind of auction company. Yeah. Um, and, but the thing is they do a bunch of other stuff. So like if you wanted to pick up just like an M one, just random M one, like you, you can pick one up on their online auctions through there too. But one of their premier auctions, which is, you know, where all these fancy guns are sold at, they had a 1903 that went up for sale. And I was like, I was so tempted to to try and get it because they had a 1903 that was serialized and tracked to having been uh, assigned to the arsenal on the USS California during Mm -hmm. the Pearl Harbor attack. Wow. And I was like, I should try and get it. 
And when I went to log on and I checked the prices like eight or nine grand already, like five minutes into the auction, I'm like, nope, close the window out. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, couple G's. I, I could I could imagine springing for that, but no. So if anybody if anybody wants a piece of Pearl Harbor history, you you can find <laughs> it's it. out there. <laughs> it is. I will say, um, I do own a piece of Pearl Harbor history myself, and that, that was part of the reason why I kind of wanted to try and get this firearm was to add to my collection. But I have in my office um, a display, because uh, like I said, when I was a kid, I was a huge history nerd, and uh, my big thing was Pearl Harbor. So for my birthday, a family friend who he was a retired uh chief petty officer from uh the submarine force uh he had a connection and he got a flag flown over the arizona memorial on my birthday and then he gave me that flag oh cool um it was it i like i said i still have it it's probably one of my favorite possessions i have and i have a little arizona model that sits in front of it but there is a museum, oddly enough, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's called the Gettysburg Museum of History. And they're a huge partner with uh, a bunch of big, uh, like, history YouTubers. Um, but one of the ways they fund their museum is they sell some of their relics, like stuff that's like, these are things people are interested in, but we don't really have the space for it. So here, like you can buy it if you want. Like they, they sold a box of Herman Goring cigars once. No. Cause they're like, they're like, this is cool and people will buy it, but also we don't have a place for it. So, <laughs> um, wonder how much those went for. I am not a clue. Probably a lot of money. Um, I have a side tangent to the side tangent of a story, but we'll get there in a second. Um, but this museum acquired a section of a plank from the USS Arizona. So they, they took a small section of it and uh, they ground it up and they turned it into these tiny little vials. So you have like a tiny little vial of like sawdust that is from the Arizona. And I have that with my little Arizona display. So oh, cool. I have... I have a piece of the Arizona sitting on my shelf. Um, but that's not something most people can say. No, I will gladly. This museum still has some of them. Um, if you want, Mason, I can send you the link for it if you have any interest in it. But uh, for our listeners, I will attach a link to this museum. And if they have any left, by all means, go and support them because that's one of their their fundraising deals. So, um side tangent to the the herman goring cigar story have you ever heard of a comedian uh called tom segura mm -hmm. yeah uh so he he also does podcasts uh and he does a podcast with another comedian named uh burt kreischer uh, it's called two bears one cave but probably <laughs> one of yeah it's jack have you ever listened to two bears one cave i have not it is a great time. Highly recommend it. Anyways, these two comedians, and they're 
you know, they're at the top of the comedian food chain currently. So they have an asinine amount of money. One of the funniest videos from their podcast that I have ever watched was they have this tradition with each other that each year they buy each other birthday presents as friends do. But their rule for their birthday present exchange is that each year or every time they exchange a gift, they have to spend more money than what the other spent on the last gift. So Mm -hmm. like it started off benign and then it like got up to like an e-bike and then like a jet ski. Um, Well, it finally got to the point that Tom Segura had to go like back channels, auctions, and all this stuff. And he bought Burt Kreischer a teacup that belonged to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and, like, it, I, I will also link this video to our, our Facebook and Instagram. But the just, like, sheer look of panic on Burt Kreischer's face when he finds out that he is holding a cup that very realistically Adolf Hitler drank from. He's like, I, you spent how much money on something that I, I should destroy or like get rid of? Like what? It's just, I don't do it any justice, but I highly recommend watching the video. It is just stupidly funny because like, the amount of effort that he went through to get this stupid gift is just almost a joke itself. I'll have to check that out. That sounds good. But I think um, we haven't even touched on Act 3 of this film, which is the Doolittle Raid. Um Jack, between this version of the Doolittle Raid or Midway's Doolittle Raid, what which one did you like Midway. more prefer? The Midway? And what yeah, is... I'm pretty sure there was more than, I, I don't know, two planes there in Doolittle Raid. Just, just thinking out loud here. Mm. But... That's a personal opinion you can have. <laughs> but... I liked um, Night Owls do little raid more. And it also showed more on the Chinese citizens helping them. Yeah. And, and of course it showed the ramifications of that. Whereas here they get like three seconds of screen time when they come to rescue them. Yeah. Yeah. With nary a mention to the ramifications of that yeah didn't the uh if i like didn't the japanese kill like tens of thousands of chinese because of the uh, yeah it was bad for even suspecting they helped them when in reality the connections were dubious at best mason what did you think of uh this do little raid uh well it's not anywhere close to historically accurate. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's par for the course on this film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
on the whole, it's not terrible. Uh, the the scenes where they're on the carrier, uh, you know, and are just barely making that launch. I mean, Doolittle's aircraft flying off the end of of, uh, of the ship is it's, a, it's an iconic moment in aviation history, you know, because it doesn't look like he's coming back up, you know, like he just fell off into the sea and then up he comes. Um, so that that part I thought was captured well. The attack on Tokyo, I mean, they make it look like all these aircraft were in tight formation and they struck some refinery or something in Tokyo and everything blew up and, and shit happened, which that wasn't the case. I mean, the, the, the raid itself, while considered successful because they actually made it to mainland Japan, they really didn't do a whole lot of damage. I don't even know if anybody died. Um, it was more of a, of, of a way to bloody their nose and show them, okay, you know, we can touch you. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you a, didn't think a, this was possible, but we're going to do it. Also, more of a fearic victory, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I think, absolutely. I think something like 50 to 100 people died in the Doolittle raid. Oh, that many. Yeah, I, uh, I wouldn't have thought it was that high. Uh, but, you know, so the movie takes a lot of artistic license there, um, which I don't like. And they also make it look like they're on the deck of the ship getting ready to launch and they're taking the guns and stuff out. I mean, all of that stuff was done before they knew they weren't going to have an ounce of, of weight to spare that they were going to have to carry every bit of fuel they could. So they were lightning, you know, lightening those aircraft up long before they got out to the ship. Um, so it, it, it really, really leaves you wanting, especially from, you know, having known the story of the Doolittle raid and how incredible it was uh, that, you know, they just kind of throw it all in there and the you know that last 30 minutes of the movie just to have our heroes do another you know another brave thing one thing that i i did like out of the do little sequence was uh the emphasis that they they placed on returning the peace medals because that was that was something that the do the Doolittle Raiders actually did was, mm-hmm. you know, they took this gift from the Japanese and, you know, they tied it to the bomb and, you know, air quotes returned it to them. And just the, you know, it's, it's like this in most of the film where you have brief moments of great, like cinematography where you're like, man, this is, this is awesome. And then it gets ruined by so many, so many other things, but like, when the Bombay doors open on the B-25 and we get that like downward view of the bombs with like the city below and you see the, the metals like clanking together mm-hmm. in the wind. I was like, man, that's, that's a badass moment right there. Um, but yeah, it's, I felt conflicted about the, the Doolittle raid because I, I love the story of the Doolittle raid. Um, and I appreciated the fact that, like, much like the rest of this film, they used actual B-25s to film it, um, which was cool to see that. Um, but just the the over-the-top, like, you know, it's, you know, when they got spotted, it was a very, you know, they, I thought they did a good job of being like, oh, shit, we have to go now. Like, we don't want to, but we have to. And so they launch and it's like, we don't have an ounce of fuel to spare except to circle around so we can fly in formation over the carrier <laughs> to show how fucking cool we are. Right. Like, it's 
like, come on, guys. It it's like, why? How did we go from like it's dark and stormy to like, oh, it's golden hour shooting with the sunset behind the bombers, and it's like, God, shut, stop. Like, I don't know. There's so many, so many choices with it. And I agree with you, Jack. I think Aaron Eckhart did a a vastly better job of being Jimmy Doolittle than uh, Alec Baldwin did. Agreed. Well, I've had a great time, guys. I have got a couple of little kids that are looking for me to help put them to bed, so I'm going to have to sign off, unfortunately. All right. Um, All right. But this has been great fun. I'd I'd, uh, I'd love to do this again sometime if you'll have me. Absolutely. Before you hop off, do you want to uh, share with the people uh, your works and where to find them? Yeah. Uh, so the books I've written um, are, well, I've got three of them. I, I've got enough material to do a couple more. So it, eventually I'll get off my lazy butt and get to work on those. But um, they're called The Profiles of Valor. Uh, they're on Amazon. Uh, I have them in print and uh, Kindle versions there. If you look for Profiles of Valor, you'll probably find them. It's easier to find them if you look up my name, Mason. Uh, and the last name is Barland. B as in boy, A-R-L-A-N-D. Uh, so yeah, just search on Amazon. You'll be able to find them. Sounds great. It's been great having you on. And so that was our guest, Mason. Unfortunately, he had to leave a little early. But I think it's a good enough a time as any to move on to the last section of our our review which is our drink choices jack what are you drinking tonight well i'm having some more berry noir because you know how much i love that beer dark tart and crisp very very solid choice i am uh i'm double fisting tonight um i started with some suntory whiskey and then i have switched over to uh sapporo beer because this is the only this is the only fucking war film that could make me root for the japanese in the pacific war um wow (laughs) that might have been a little too far but i thought it was hilarious but i also have some appalachian Sippin' cream eggnog with me. Sippin' cream. Yep. Eggnog. Twenty forty proof. Yeah, tis the season. Bro, I love eggnog. If you got any for any of our listeners, if you got any good eggnog recipes, make sure to let me know. Well, I think it's I think it's about time we, we rate this film, unfortunately. Uh, we weren't able to grab Mason's uh, thoughts, but I would have to imagine it's on the lower end of the spectrum. Uh, Jack, what do you think uh, an appropriate rating for this film would be? 10% at best. Well, we got to come up with a, a metric well, first. Um, quote unquote duds. It's a dud! Yeah, <laughs> I give this one quote-unquote dud out of five. I also give this one dud. So, let's see. The uh, tomometer says 24% and the audience says 66%. You know what? The public is fucking wrong about this movie. 
I miss you more than Michael Bay. Miss the mark with Pearl Harbor. Had to had to get that out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I need you more than Ben Affleck needed acting lessons. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, the public's wrong on this one. Yeah. And I think that about ties it up for this movie. I think so. Folks, I know this was uh, an abrupt end, but you can only shit on a movie so much. Yeah. Um, If my calculations are correct, uh, the... Well, we're doing this as a bonus reel, so it, it, it... doesn't matter what our next film is actually but uh going back to the beginning of the episode i looked it up and it'll be the 82nd anniversary of the pearl harbor attacks Um, so uh hopefully this was a good enough listen and educational enough for the the anniversary uh as i stated before if you want additional content from us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Armchair Commanders Podcast, where I will post such things as that Tom Segura bit or the link to that museum where I believe they still have bits of the Arizona that you can purchase. Um, We also have a Discord, which uh, Jack led a viewing session of this movie there. So go and join us there if you want to watch the film with us. you can also find us at YouTube at the Armchair Commanders Podcast. Uh, lastly, be sure to go and check out Mason's book on Amazon. Uh, go and support him, leave a review for that stuff. I'm sure he would greatly appreciate it. Jack, do you have anything else? I don't. Well, it has been great having you all with us. And until next time, I've been John. And I've been Jack. And we will catch you later. You know what you have to do. Oh. Bye.